Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. During election season, it's important to know who's behind the political and issue ads we see on Facebook. That's why Facebook is increasing political ad transparency, with tools to help you get more information about who paid for those ads, what other ads they ran, and how much was spent. You can also search for this information on their ad archive. Learn more about their ongoing efforts at facebook.com slash action plan. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on our latest episode of the Nerdcast, we're going to talk through the future of two Republican senators after last week's vote to confirm Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. We talked a lot about uh, those red state Democrats up for uh, re-election in 2018 and how the Supreme Court vote was affecting, uh, in a lot of cases negatively, their chances of re-election. But um, a couple of Republicans kind of caught the eye on this vote to confirm the latest Supreme Court justice. Will Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski pay a political price for opposing her party's president and voting against Kavanaugh? And will Maine Senator Susan Collins face backlash against her vote in favor, potentially costing her her Senate seat in a blue-leaning state in 2020? We're going to check in on that. Plus, we're going to check in on the midterms that are coming up in a few weeks. We're going to talk about the Republican House majority and the continuing signs that we're seeing of increased peril for that, with Democrats steadily gaining ground toward that 23-seat net they will need to pick up on election night to end eight years of GOP House control. One quick note, though, before we get going. Are you going to be in Southern California later this month? If you are, Nerdcast will again be on the stage at Politicon, the Conference for Political Junkies. It's in Los Angeles. It's on October 20th and 21st, and we hope we can see you there. And as per usual, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. That's October 11th this week. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. Uh, Here with me in the studio, as usual, is Charlie Matessian, Senior Politics Editor. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Scott. And uh, we've also got our Senate campaign reporter, James Arkin, here. Hi, James. Hi. And on the line from the Capitol, congressional reporter Alana Shore joins us by phone. Hi, Alana. How you doing? Hello. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to out of, out of the still in session Senate to to join us here. <laughs> no problem. All right. Let's move on to our first data point. Uh, Two, as in two years left in Senator Susan Collins' term, uh, she was one of two senators who really kind of went went against the grain on their states a little bit on the Republican side uh, when the Senate voted to confirm Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh last week. Uh, so we've got Senator Collins from Maine uh, voting in favor of Kavanaugh, and then Alaska's Senator Lisa Murkowski opposed, and both of these Republicans facing potential political fallout for their votes. President Donald Trump asserted that Murkowski will, quote, never recover from her no vote and that it might alienate uh, the you know voters from the Alaska moderate. Uh, on the flip side, Democrats uh, in Maine and all around the country are hopping mad at Collins right now, and they're opening their wallets to show it. 
Um, Alana, I want to start with Murkowski. Uh, what kind of fallout is she is she facing? You know, is it possible that Trump's attacks on the Alaska senator will alienate her on future votes that are important to his administration? And uh, and what about her political future? You know, it's a, it's a we've got a little bit of time, but she's obviously going to be up again for re-election in 2022. Well, it's quite possible that Trump's harsh remarks about Murkowski's vote could affect her standing with his base. But it's important to remember that Murkowski's base is very different. She won re-election as a write-in in 2010, asking voters to spell her name after a Tea Party-backed conservative defeated her. So it's clear that at this point she's built her own durable coalition in her state that no doubt includes some Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. And when you talk to Republican senators... They're not worried about Murkowski, and they're not planning to punish her. Trump is a little bit of an outlier in his lingering hard feelings, but it's important to note that he is affecting the state-level GOP, which is currently, you know, doing a little internal licksy at how they want to approach her going forward. Again, though, the, the top-line news here is that Murkowski's fellow Republicans inside the Senate like her, and they want to keep her happy. They're not going to take her gavel. And just the other day, you saw her vote with the administration on a really important health care vote. So... It's anybody's guess how long this will really linger. Yeah, and I th- that's a really good point, given that it's so long until she's up for re-election again. And, and Charlie, you know, t- talking about that 2010 primary that Murkowski lost to Joe Miller at the height of the Tea Party wave, right, and then coming back to uh, defeat him as a write-in in the general election. That's one of the most famous <laughs> victories probably in Senate history and just kind of proves that she she probably has less to fear from an angry Trump base than any Republican senator in the Senate right now. Right. I mean, two United States senators have won election to the Senate through a write-in campaign. Uh, I mean, and she's one of them. That's the other one. Strom Thurmond. I mean, and that's just badass. Can (laughs) can I say that? Yeah. I mean, it it is. Like, two people have done it. She's one of them. And it's it's sort of a testament to her durability, as you mentioned. But it it also speaks to uh, something that both she and Susan Collins have in common. They're both very unique species within two very unique states. I mean, both Maine and Alaska are unique in that they have viable third parties. They have independent uh, candidates who win statewide office. They're just not like the other states. They're not... These, uh, you know, duopoly states where you only have two parties and those are the only people who ever get elected. I mean, odd things happen in those states because the voters are different. They're independent minded. And I think this hyperventilation in Washington about Collins and Murkowski both being toast because of a single vote is kind of ridiculous. I mean, in part because Murkowski has, you know, four years for all of this to sort of, uh, you know, come mellow out a little bit in her state. You know, her bigger problem will probably be within her own party, but she's always had problems within her own party, which isn't comfortable with where she is ideologically. I mean, she's a little closer to the center than I think many Alaska Republicans. And and in Collins's case, people forget Collins has been on the scene in Maine for many, many years, and she has won big against very good opposition. She is not somebody who's gotten lucky by always running in great uh, Republican years or been lucky because the other party, because Democrats couldn't get good candidates to run against her. Like she has beaten the cream of the crop in Maine. She has beaten a former governor, Joe Brennan, to win the seat. She's, she's uh, you know, she's beaten uh, former members of Congress. Like she has beaten all comers and not by a little. She has blown them out. And so for those reasons, those are two very, very tough politicians that know their states very well. I'm going to throw it to James on Collins in, in a second. But um, Alana, really briefly first, can you tell us uh, anything about how Murkowski herself has reacted to, to the broadside from Trump and, and kind of the reaction she's she's been getting uh, after, after that Supreme Court vote? 
Well, Murkowski hasn't directly addressed the president on this matter, but that's not really her style. She's always loath to criticize him whenever reporters come up and ask about specific tweets, although she will. What she has made clear in pretty emotional fashion after the Kavanaugh vote is that she feels the Senate has reached rock bottom in terms of the lack of bipartisan collaboration, the constant emotional stresses that Trump's peripatetic habits put on her own party, on Democrats. You know, she's not really pointing fingers at one side or the other, but she's trying to make a call for unity. That was her attitude after the Kavanaugh vote. Of course, you know, that kind of call for unity tends to fall on deaf ears at a time and place when, when both parties have retreated so far into their corners. Right. Uh, right. That's, that's kind of a lonely place to be right now, uh, actually. Exactly. And now on, on the flip side, James, we've got uh, Susan Collins kind of also she also made this big Senate floor speech uh, uh, where in which she explained her her why she was going to vote for Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. Um, and it, it un- just unleashed this furious uh, <laughs> barrage of Democratic energy against her. And I know Charlie's very skeptical about uh, about Democrats' prospects of unseating Collins. But you did a little bit of reporting about um, why uh, a lot of Maine Democrats, clear-eyed though they might be about her strengths, think that this could be a watershed moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she has built up, uh, you know, Charlie talked about all the times that she's beaten credible, well-funded candidates by, uh, you know, huge margins. She she hasn't really struggled in re-elections, but Democrats think that, you know, it started with her vote for the the tax bill and specifically, you know, the uh, the provision um, on the uh, Obamacare individual mandate in the tax bill. And then it just kept building and building and it sort of crescendoed with this vote for Justice Kavanaugh. And so the main Democrats that I talked to earlier this week feel like this is uh, kind of an example of, of Susan Collins in their eyes showing who she really is, showing that she is a partisan Republican. She's not this independent minded uh, thinker that uh, that she has kind of created her brand to be. And so Democrats admit she is a very tough politician. Beating her in 2020 is not going to be easy. Uh, but they're also they're going to have credible candidates lining up uh, to take her on. There are more than half a dozen are, are thinking about it right now. Uh, there are probably going to be more uh, depending on how the elections go in this November. And so they, they kind of feel like this is a watershed moment. Like you said, that that Susan Collins, because of this and because of kind of what has happened to her independent brand over the last two years uh, in the Trump administration, they think that she's more vulnerable than she has been in the past. I did not do any kind of political calculation in making my decision. I have to apply my best judgment. I cannot weigh the political consequences. In this case, it was obvious there were going to be people very angry at me no matter what I did. I keep thinking about uh, Mark Pryor, the Democrat from Arkansas, the son of a uh, very popular Democrat from Arkansas who uh, was whose standing was so good in 2008 that Republicans didn't even bother running anyone against him. And then things changed. He voted with the Obama administration on a bunch of stuff and got crushed in 2014. I don't know that the analogy holds because I think in different circumstances. I think Arkansas was trending so hard Republican at that point and, you know, Pryor was running against so so many different kinds of headwinds and I don't think those are present in, in Maine. And here's the other thing in Maine. If you're going to, uh, you know, if you, if you listen to what Democrats are saying, you know, they're trying to portray her, uh, Susan Collins, as some sort of crypto conservative, somebody who's going off the deep end and, you know, voted in lockstep with Donald Trump. But here's, she has a very viable argument and will be running 
commercials and all all of these points when people call her, uh, you know, a partisan uh, Republican or a crypto conservative or whatever. I mean, she has voted to confirm uh, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Elena Kagan voted against repealing Obamacare, uh, announced publicly in 2016 that she would not be voting for Donald Trump. Uh, she publicly opposed Senate Le- Republican leadership's decision uh, to submarine the nomination of Merrick Garland. And, and I mean, her main problem back home has been with the Tea Party faction. So, like, it's very hard to paint her as some sort of extremist in the employ of the Trump administration. And, and don't forget, when she cast that Obamacare vote last year, uh, she was treated as a hero coming back to Maine. I mean, people were applauding her left. in the airport on the left. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there was talk about maybe uh, she would leave the Senate to run for governor of Maine. And most political observers thought that she couldn't win that race because of frustrations because of the on primary. the right. Exactly. That she couldn't, that she couldn't beat a Republican primary opponent. So, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen if this is just vocal Democrats who are still mad at Susan Collins and they're going to be. But what we don't know is did anything shift with the independents and, and with moderates and, and both sides of the party? It, it seems pretty clear that uh, she's got a lot of uh, proof points, as Charlie said, that she is still the independent that uh, thinker that she's always claimed to be. It's a good point. Charlie also raised, raised. Uh, I will grudgingly admit that one of his points was okay. That, that Maine, okay, it was Maine, brilliant. <laughs> that Maine, Maine is not as blue as maybe a lot of people think it is. You know, it, it, uh, it, it that that second district, northern Maine, has a lot of uh, Republicans there. It's 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 more of an evenly divided state than some of the other New England uh, ones, and so with the exception of New Hampshire. So that's that's a, a very good point. And to to James's point about you know Democrats being angry now, we'll see if they are at the very least they're bottling a lot of money right now, over four million dollars in small donations that they've kind of put in escrow for the eventual nominee to run against Collins, which and, is very interesting. And keep in mind that in 2020, when she runs, there's going to be the presidential race as a backdrop. And so on the one hand, that's going to mean more Democrats are going to be out there. It's going to be a higher turnout election. But it also means that uh, President Trump's reelection machine is going to be in full gear in the part of the state she needs it to be. Because remember, he won the electoral vote. Maine has that cockamamie system where they divvy up the, <laughs> the their electoral votes by uh, congressional district. And he, and he plucked that one out of that northern rural district. And so he is going to, the, the Republican National Committee, the Trump reelect, they are going to be very active in organizing that state. And so she is going to, uh, I think, be the beneficiary of that as well, since it's a presidential year. And therein lies a big problem for Democrats, too. They need to run someone who can win that part of the state while Trump is contesting it in a presidential election. That's a good point. Uh, Alana, in, in terms of the, the, the Senate reaction to, to this vote, we saw some very warm words uh, for Collins from... Uh, um, among others, President Trump and also Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, you know, folks who were none too happy with her about a year ago at this time, as, as we mentioned, when the, those health care votes were were rolling through. And and that, that, that's going to be another aspect to, to kind of keep an eye on going forward. She seemed to not, not that she was ever in danger of losing, you know, the, the, the loyalty of, of, of McConnell in, in terms of winning reelection. But the, this seemed to really, really cement her as a priority uh, for him. Oh, absolutely. I don't think it's exaggerating to say that Susan Collins is now a bit of a cult or folk hero to a lot of folks in the Senate GOP. And that's going to mean a lot to her if she decides to run for re-election, which, let's be clear, she may yet decide not to do. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Uh, 2020 is a long way away. Um, one one last thing on this segment before we uh, uh, before we head out. Are there any other races we should be thinking about and where, where the, the Kavanaugh vote may still be echoing in 2020? Or is this going to be something that kind of disappears? Uh, you know, there's going to be 14 other issues that kind of rise up between now and then that are going to be driving what, what people are thinking in, in 2020. James, you want to take 
take a shot at this one? Yeah, the first two that come to mind immediately are uh, North Carolina and uh, and Colorado. Uh, Tom Tillis and Cory Gardner, two Republicans who uh, didn't, without much fanfare, took a vote for uh, Brett Kavanaugh for Supreme Court. Um, but those are swing states or states that Democrats are going to contest in 2020 trying to win the Senate majority, uh, that's that's a vote that's you know going to per- perhaps be uh, central to Democrats' campaign against those two. And then you also have to think about Doug Jones in Alabama, obviously mm-hmm. won that mm-hmm. special election, but he's up for re-election. Uh, he came out very early against Justice Kavanaugh, and he's going to have to try and win again in, in uh, Alabama, probably without someone as uh, as easy to defeat as Roy Moore on the other side of the ballot. So those those are three that come to mind where this could uh, you know continue to be a big issue for years to come. That's a great point. I'm kind of of two minds about this. I like on the one hand, I really do think you know there's so much that's going to happen between now and then. On the flip side, every June the Supreme Court puts out you know a bunch of high profile decisions, and who knows what's going to be coming down the pike and the next few years. And if there's a, you know, a big controversial 5-4 decision that, that Kavanaugh uh, comes down on in June of 2020, who's to say that that won't play, play a big role in, in Cory Gardner's reelection or, or any of these other races? I don't know. To me, the rev- the real reverberations will be in 2018 uh, when when the memories and the wound is still fresh, and uh, I suspect it probably uh, will affect the red state Senate races more than anything else. In, in 2020, my, I totally agree with James, but I, uh, what I'll be watching will be Colorado because I'm not even sure that Colorado really qualifies as a swing state anymore. I mean, it's it's purple to to bluish. I mean, the way it's been moving, at least in presidential elections, and so uh, that is a, a state that to me, if that if the Kavanaugh vote reverberates in 2020. That's where I'll be looking. Got it. All right. Well, thank you all for for joining to talk through this. Uh, It was a great discussion. Alana, thanks for joining us on the phone. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, James, thanks for being here in the studio. Yeah, great to be here. And Charlie, you're you're always here, so I'm not going to bother thanking you. I never leave. (laughs) All right. We are going to leave it there. Coming up, we're going to switch from the Senate to the House. We're going to talk about Politico's latest race ratings and the outlook for the House in the midterm elections. But first, a word from a sponsor. During election season, it's important to know who's behind the political and issue ads we see on Facebook. That's why Facebook is increasing political ad transparency, with tools to help you get more information about who paid for those ads, what other ads they ran, and how much was spent. You can also search for this information on their ad archive. Learn more about their ongoing efforts at facebook.com slash action plan. On to our next data point, which is 209. Politico's latest race ratings are out, and they find Democrats steadily gaining ground toward erasing their 23-seat deficit in the House and ending eight years of GOP control of the chamber. Uh, We now have 209 seats rated as either firmly or leaning into the Democratic column, only nine shy of the 218 needed to win control. So here to talk about it, we've got Steve Shepard, who is our ratings guru at Politico. He's here to help us size it up. Steve, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, Scott. And Elena Schneider, our house reporter, is taking a brief break from the trail to uh, come in here and help help illustrate it for us all. Thank you, Elena. Happy to be here. And of course, Charlie is still here, despite our, our best efforts to kick him out of the studio. <laughs> you can't get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, the headline of your story this week reads, the GOP house is crumbling. Break it down for us. Well, the, just what you said, 209 seats we have is either lean Leaning Democratic, likely Democratic or solid Democratic. Uh, You need 218 for the House majority. Democrats have been slowly but surely putting some of these seats into their column, some more firmly than others, over the last uh, six weeks or so, really going back to Labor Day. 
you know, we didn't really t- see it much at the time, but in talking with all the strategists and pollsters that I did over the past couple of weeks, uh, one of the things that I, I kept hearing was, you know, September Democrats wanted to lie low and not talk about it, and Republicans wanted to to, to pretend it wasn't happening, but things were moving a little bit more in the Democratic column. The Kavanaugh fight over the past couple of weeks was a little bit of, blip, uh, of a blip on the radar. I don't think we know what that's going to do moving forward. But there's no question that some of these seats, and we can get into which ones, um, were moving into the Democratic column over the month of September uh, in a way that puts Democrats in, in pretty good position. They they haven't won the House yet, but they are inching closer to that majority uh, as we sit here three and a half weeks until Election Day. Elena, can you take us through some of the specific districts that, that we're talking about here that, that have gone from maybe battlegrounds to, to potentially less less contested territory? Now, Democrats seem to be doing better over the last month or so that, that, that could help them tip the House. Sure. Well, so there are a couple of districts that um, that really have started to migrate even, even further into the Democratic corners, in part because of what was happening out of Kavanaugh. Um, Democrats and Republicans are still sort of arguing as to who got uh, the bump out of that. And in terms of the places where Democrats got um, got some help, it was in the places where they were already moving in their direction. So that's somebody like Mike Kaufman in the uh, Denver suburbs, where uh, he already had a serious problem with women. He already had a serious problem with well-educated, uh, affluent voters. And the Kavanaugh hearing made that worse. And so that's why we saw um, Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the major outside super PAC for Republicans, decide to pull their support for Kaufman in here uh, a month out from Election Day because they see the writing on the wall in a place like that. Um, But those tend to be sort of, again, those more suburban seats where they're just these huge clusters of well-educated, affluent voters who don't like what the president is doing and want to send a check and balance message to him. And, you know, a, a few other seats. It's interesting talking about Kaufman. I think we've talked about this in past episodes, but Mike Kaufman and Barbara Comstock in Virginia and, uh, you know, Carlos Curbelo in in Florida and the, all all the folks who Republicans had held up for the past year as people who were battle tested because they won uh, previous battleground races are are kind of finding that that the, the landscape and the environment is just looking a little different this time. Curbelo, I, I probably should not lump in quite as much with the other two because well, well he's. Uh, he's still in a in a very tight race, whereas things seem to have gotten away from the other two a little bit. But for a while, Republicans were arguing that Curbelo wouldn't be in a tight race because he had this independent brand and that it, it seems like voters don't care about that as much. Uh, this time. And, and what we're seeing is that the the most tightly contested battlegrounds are now places that that really had had not had competitive races before as as the the landscape shifts to the left and kind of puts Democrats more within striking distance. And we're talking about places that have been Republican for the past couple of decades. Uh, you know, those uh, suburbs of Denver um, stretching down to uh, Kaufman's district doesn't go this far, but down towards Colorado Springs is kind of the heart of the frontier Republican Party um, over the past 30 years. Carlos Curbelo in Miami. Miami has been the heart of the Republican Party in Florida for a long time, even even with, with people like Jeb Bush. Um, if you're talking about Barbara Comstock in Northern Virginia, Frank Wolf had that district for, on lockdown for decades. Um, and these are places that have turned against the Republican Party kind of – we're already starting to inch away and that trend has been accelerated by President Trump who appeals to a different kind of voter. I think the, the most interesting uh, 
race uh, along those lines is Kaufman. Because when you think about Kaufman and, and his history in that seat, he's not a lazy guy. He's a guy who works hard. He's not some overripe backbencher just filling a seat. He's a guy who's worked very hard to win a district that has been highly competitive. He learned Spanish in order to be more responsive to his constituents and to respond to, to the needs of a, of a district that was, uh, you know, in, in some demographic transition. For years, he's been able to sort of withstand various kinds of um, uh, election um, you know, weather events. Yet here we are um, roughly even as late as a, a month or as early as a month before the election. And everyone has written him off and it goes to show you uh, what the Trump effect is is having out there, particularly in any kind of district that has a suburban component to it. I mean, it's, it's, it, when you take a look at the polling in the most grim uh, polls, it, it's always the same kind of place. It is a suburb and there's every sign that it's going to be a bloodbath for Republicans in the suburbs, whether it's Kaufman or whether it's uh, Eric Paulson. Uh, you, you know, you could see, you definitely could see it in New Jersey. I mean, some of that polling is grim as you know, Elena. Elena, uh, can you tell us about, you were just in Texas uh, recently and you, you were reporting on, and you know, we're talking about all this, uh, the, the, the suburban coalition that Democrats are building, but you were reporting on another part of the Democratic coalition that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years that is causing some concern for some Democrats now a month out from Election Day, and that's Hispanic voters. That's right. So we've spent so much time, and, and rightfully so, because those are the kinds of voters who are saying they're more excited than they ever have been, being well-educated, affluent um, female voters. That's where a lot of our attention has been focused on. But uh, a group, a very important coalition uh, the Democrats need to focus on and are quite concerned about are Latino voters. And they are still rating themselves as as not as likely to vote and less enthusiastic about voting than um than several of these other uh, voting blocks that we've talked about. And there are about a dozen districts that are on Democrats' sort of target list where t- Latino voters make up about a fifth of the, of the population. And for those races that are sort of on the knife's edge, amping turnout in the Latino areas is incredibly important. And that's where they really need to make up ground, particularly in places like California, Southern California, Texas, Nevada. You cannot win those races without having a strong performance on the part of Latinos. And, you know, look, that the, the, um, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has certainly pointed to a couple of different uh, places where they feel like they've um, been able to amp turnout. They pointed to uh, California's 39th district where Gil Cisneros, a Latino himself, was able to uh, double turnout over 2014 among the Latino population. In the primary. In the primary, exactly, back in June. Um, so look, it's not as if sort of things look hopeless for them um, in terms of you know not having any turnout from the Latino population. It's just a question of whether those numbers are going to be strong enough. And those are the kinds of voters that are going to put them over the top in races where they haven't won in in decades, in Orange County, in the suburbs around Houston and Dallas, um, and in in parts of Florida. And you can forget about Betomania if, uh, you know, Latinos don't turn out in Texas. Well, and and to that point, you know, everyone assumes that with the president's harsh rhetoric uh, about immigration and and people from Mexico and Central America, that the Hispanic vote will be, would be both A, very excited and B, very overwhelmingly democratic. But what you just mentioned with Betomania is interesting because we've gotten a bunch of polls this week in both Texas and Nevada and some of these statewide races. And you have people like Ted Cruz or Greg Abbott in the governor's race or in Nevada, uh, Adam Laxalt, the Republican for governor and Dean Heller, the incumbent uh, Republican senator who's vulnerable. You have them drawing roughly a third, if not close to 40 percent of the Hispanic vote in these polls. Now, 
Hispanic voters are hard to reach in polls. So there may be some issues there and we'll see what happens on Election Day. But these Republicans are holding their own for now. So it's not just an enthusiasm question. It's that, uh, the, the, the most vulnerable Republicans here uh, in, in high Hispanic states are actually doing pretty well. Well, and I was talking to a number of different um consultants and pollsters, um, people who worked with Hillary Clinton back um, during her presidential race, who said, look, they're, they're, you have to take it. I mean, Latino voters are like any other voters. You have to make the connection between this person who's in the White House who said things that have offended you and connect them to your Republican member of Congress. And that's a leap that has to be made by the candidate and by the party. And if they're not doing it successfully, then that's on them. It's not on the voter to necessarily have to make that connection. They have to make that pitch. What's remarkable is is how cynical we've become about uh, thinking about uh, how the Latino vote performs. I mean, we're, we're we're sitting here celebrating Republicans who are pulling a third of the Latino vote. I mean, can you imagine how our politics would change if Republicans would just compete and not consistently alienate uh, Latino communities? I mean, it, it would be it would be a sea change in American politics. I mean, it's ridiculous that we're sitting here talking about being impressed by a Republican pulling thirty percent. Well, except, you know, one of those things is, though, about that, and I, I've, I've talked about it when we've talked about redistricting in past shows, it's, we've talked about how but I think I really think a big part of why Democrats have done so poorly among uh, blue collar whites, you know, throughout the Midwest and, and elsewhere over the past years is that in redistricting in 2011 and 2012, um, Republicans essentially made it impossible they drew districts that made it impossible for Democrats to, to win in those areas. And so Democrats lost their ambassadors to those areas. There were no longer any people talking uh, to blue-collar white voters from the Democratic Party. And that kind of filtered back. And there were no, no longer people in among House Democrats talking to other House Democrats about the concerns of those voters. And it became this feedback loop. On the flip side, I think you could end up with uh, Republicans getting into a big problem here, where if folks like Mike Kaufman end up losing, Mike Kaufman, who learned to speak Spanish, as Charlie mentioned, who is now running ads on Denver TV about how he intervened to help uh, prevent the the uh, adopted child of a, a, a Denver couple from getting deported uh, earlier this year. You know, if, if folks like him are the ones that are getting defeated, then I think you could end up with a growing problem on the Republican side of if they're losing those local ambassadors to the Hispanic community who are trying to make that connection. Jeff Denham in California, another great example of this, someone who's beat the drum for a long time on immigration reform and how the party needed to pay more attention to this. If you lose those ambassadors to those local communities, you could, I, th I think you could end up in a situation where the Republican Party in Washington pays even less attention to the concerns of Hispanic voters than they have been. And then things could really start to spiral. But to me, both parties have become like electoral crack addicts because they, so so think about the Republicans, for example. They don't, they don't care about African-Americans, the African-American vote or the Latino vote anymore because they, they are addicted to the idea that they think they can keep amping up their white percentage. And they've done that and it's kept, it's sustained them, particularly in presidential uh, elections as they've slowly amped up the, uh, the percentage going higher and higher of the white vote that they command every four years. And on the flip side of that, Democrats have also had a problem. They don't care about the rural vote, the white blue collar vote anymore, because they see the future as the ascendant Obama coalition. They saw what it could be in 2008 when you really amp up the Democratic base. And they've also been slowly turning up the dial in terms of the percentages of African-Americans that they win in presidential elections and all elections and Latino vote. I mean, people forget, like when you look at the big city numbers and the, and the big urban counties, they used to be fairly competitive for the Republican Party, like big ones, big urbanized counties. 
personalities. Now, when you look at them, it's no longer maybe like a 55-45 or uh, 60-40 in presidential. It's 70-30, it's 85-15, and that has been a big change in in politics, I think, over the last 20 years. Yeah, that's a great point, and uh, one that's going to have a big outsized role, not just in uh, this coming election, but in 2020 when when President Trump is up for re-election. that was excellent, guys. Thank you so much for, for walking us through it. Elena, thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, I'll head to the airport now. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks for gutting it out. <laughs> uh, we Steve, know you're sick. Steve, th- thank you very much for, for coming in here as well. Always a pleasure. And uh, Charlie, before we bid farewell to you, uh, I, w- I want to uh, ask you real quick, You know, as we've done in the past, we want to send some well wishes to all our listeners in the path of Hurricane Michael. But Charlie, uh, our, our Florida team... Uh, had, a, had a story this week about a departure from a long-held tradition in Florida politics in terms of the, the politicking around these major weather events. And, you know, I, ju- I just want to, like, ask everyone to, you know, imagine you're in Florida, you're hunkering down as this monster storm is bearing down on you. So the Hurricane Center just issued an advisory saying that Michael made landfall. You're watching the news. Mexico Beach, just east of Panama City, with winds of 155 miles an hour. And then you see stuff like this. The most powerful Atlantic storm in recorded history. A worst-case scenario for South Florida. I mean, this is a buzzsaw. If you are in an evacuation zone in South Florida, you need to leave. Florida Governor Rick Scott warned about the significant storm surge. In my direction, all tolls have been waived across Florida roadways. I'm activating another 900 Guard members. The governor really is getting out in front of this. We can rebuild your home, but we cannot rebuild your life. I'm Rick Scott. I approve this message. Yeah, I mean, it's just another norm in politics that's been uh, blown up. I mean, in, po- in Florida for, for many years, it was considered unseemly to be politicking surrounding uh, extreme weather events like hurricanes and things like that. And both parties could could sort of, uh, you know, put their differences aside and uh, put politics aside and come together. Uh, and, and if nothing else, they would pull down their ads and uh, politics would, would shut down while while the state tried to deal with uh, the, the catastrophes that were befalling them. Now, though, I mean, this year, uh, everything has changed in a really dramatic way, in, in a way that I don't think anyone's ever seen before. And it's really stunning. Uh, the candidates are hitting each other for their uh, for for their hurricane disaster or recovery efforts. They are running negative ads. They're not pulling down negative ads. And uh, it's just a toxic environment at the worst possible time in Florida. And just goes to show, you know, how, how politics continues to spiral uh, down and continues to always, uh, you know, uh, gravitate toward the lowest common denominator uh, these days. And, and there's no better example of that than Florida because both parties understand that uh, these are very high stakes political events now and nobody is going to give up uh, an opportunity to score points. So, for example, in Rick Scott's case, uh, Republicans understand that during the recent hurricanes when he has had a very high profile. He had his favorability ratings have picked up, and so they're trying to uh, take advantage of that. And I think on the Democratic side, uh, you see uh, Democrats not willing to give an inch either, and not and uh, reacting to uh, Republican efforts to to hammer Andrew Gillum, the gubernatorial nominee. And so they're going right back at the Republican Party. An uplifting note, to be sure, to, to end on end on this week. Thank you very much, Charlie. Sure. And also a big thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Our producers this week are Jenny Ament and Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.
Is this the week that we had Monday off? Did we have Monday off this week? Off. Yeah, 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 off. Yeah. Um. 